From points across California, you're listening to the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged. This is the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, episode 246 for the week of January 30th, 2014. The Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, helping you plan a perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. I'm your host Tom Bell and I'm joined by our Disneyland team, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Malata-Willie, and Michael Bowling. In this segment, Michael starts his look forward to next year's 60th anniversary of Disneyland, this time looking at the relationship of Mary Poppins saving Mr. Banks and its effect on Disneyland. Am I right, Michael? You're right, Tom. Thank you. Now, Walt Disney Productions in the early 1960s was entering a new era. The film Mary Poppins was in production. Its financial success would finance innovation in audio animatronics and theme park design, ushering in a new generation of attractions and expansion at Disneyland. Several attractions for the New York World's Fair were underway, and at the conclusion of the fair, these attractions would be relocated to Disneyland and become favorites for generations of children and adults. As we look forward to the 60th anniversary of Disneyland, let's take a look back at the making of the film Mary Poppins and Disneyland of the 1960s, and a look at the events depicted in the film Saving Mr. Banks. Now, just a little background on Mary Poppins. Um, She's the title character of a series of eight books written by P.L. Travers that were published between 1934 to 1988. Only the first three of the eight books feature Mary Poppins arriving and leaving. The books center on a magical English nanny, Mary Poppins. She is blown by the east wind to number 17 Cherry Tree Lane, London, and into the Banks household to care for their children, Jane, Michael, and baby twins, John and Barbara. The later five books recount previously unrecorded adventures from her original three visits, because as P.L. Travers explains in her introduction to Mary Poppins in the park, she cannot forever arrive and depart. Now, Mary Poppins was first brought to life in an early live television play telecast in 1949 by CBS Television as part of their anthology series Studio One. She was played by character actress Mary Wicks. And you might remember Mary Wicks from Sister Act. Yeah. She's probably my favorite character actress of all time. Yeah, and she was in the Dennis the Menace series okay. as Miss, um, I, I can't remember her character, but that's where I first became acquainted with her. But her, Mary Wicks's performance may, was noticeably closer to what P.L. Travers envisioned. Um, E.G. Marshall portrayed Mr. Banks, and future Lassie child star Tommy Reddick played Michael. David Apatashu played Bert, who was a matchman in this version. And the characters were decidedly American in this version. Hmm. Um, Mary Poppins was made into a film based on the first four books in the series by Walt Disney Productions in 1964 and celebrates its 50th anniversary in 2014. The process of planning the film and composing the songs took about two years. And I recently attended a presentation at the Walt Disney Family Museum by Dave Smith, founder and chief archivist emeritus, 
of the Walt Disney Archives on a look behind the scenes of Walt Disney's Mary Poppins. And from what I understand, this is the same presentation Mr. Smith delivered at the most recent D23 Expo. So, in the early 1940s, Walt Disney saw the Mary Poppins book on his daughter Diane's bedside table. He read the book and immediately saw it as Disney material. P.L. Travers did not agree. Now, Walt's brother, Roy O. Disney, was the first one to contact P.L. Travers without success. On January 24, 1944, Roy wrote to Walt about his meeting with Mrs. Travers, and Roy reported that Mrs. Travers could not conceive of Mary Poppins as a cartoon. Roy suggested a combination of live action and animation to bring out the fantasy of the story. Now, the Disney Studios had expertise with this as Song of the South was in production at this time. Roy described P.L. Travers as an Amelia Earhart type of character with an English accent and is quite cagey. Mm. He suggested Walt personally contact P.L. Travers. Walt did and invited Mrs. Travers to visit the studio. For years, he invited her to visit the studio. And Walt was so desperate for the movie rights to Mary Poppins that in 1960, he did something he had never done. He gave P.L. Travers approval on the script. Now, Bill Walsh and Don DeGrotti wrote the screenplay. Robert Stevenson was selected as the producer because he grew up with an English nanny. Now, even before Disney had secured the rights, he gave the book to the Sherman Brothers to see what kinds of songs they could come up with. And at a later meeting, Richard Sherman reported that both they and Walt had picked the same six chapters from the book. And after listening to the first few songs the Sherman Brothers wrote for Mary Poppins, Walt put them under contract for the film. Now, P.L. Travers did finally visit the studio, and she actually visited the studio twice. First visit was in April 1961, and... She can be heard as a dominant presence in the recorded conversations. The writers pretty much gave in to her script change requests, but changed much to, much of it back after she left. <laughs> Not surprising. Yeah. Not only did P.L. Travers review the script, she also went over the lyrics of all the songs. Now, interestingly, Julie Andrews was not Walt Disney's first choice to portray Mary Poppins. Walt originally asked Mary Martin to take on the role. Oh, interesting. Yeah, would have definitely changed the film. Um, Mary Martin was a well-known Broadway actress at the time, and she was starring as Maria Von Trapp in the Broadway musical Sound of Music. Her most famous role may be Peter Pan on Broadway in the live NBC television telecasts in 1955, 56, and 60. And although Mary Martin expressed interest in the role of Mary Poppins, nothing ever came of it. Now, Walt's secretary saw the Broadway musical Camelot starring Julie Andrews and suggested to Walt he go see it. After seeing the musical, Walt went backstage and offered Julie Andrews the role. And to sweeten the deal, he offered her husband at the time, Tony Walton, the job of set and costume design. So Julie Andrews was flattered at the offer, but worried the role of Mary Poppins on film would ruin her stage career. 
Now, Julie Andrews had starred as Eliza Doolittle in My Fair Lady on Broadway, but when she was turned down for the screen role in favor of Audrey Hepburn, she accepted Walt's offer and then gave birth to her first daughter the very next day. Hmm. So Julie Andrews' role as Mary Poppins was announced in 1962. Dick Van Dyke, who was starring in his own television show, was selected as Bert. Glynis Johns, who had been in Disney's The Sword and the Rose in 1953, was selected for the role of Mrs. Banks. And in a story that I heard uh, um, Richard Sherman relate a few years ago, Walt really wanted Glynis Johns, and she did not want to be in the film. So they were all in a meeting, the Sherman brothers were there, and Walt said to Glynis Johns, you have to be in in the film because this is a very important role and you even have your own song to sing well she didn't and so well and Walt promised Walt promised that when she next visited the studio she would hear the song and so the Sherman brothers had to immediately begin writing the sister suffragette song for Glynis Johns in order to entice her to be in the film which they, they did and I love that song, so I'm glad they, I'm glad he said that. Yeah, yeah. Walt certainly knew how to, um, you know, entice people. So, and Glynis Johns had, as I said, she had been in the sword in, in Disney's The Sword and the Rose in 1953. Um, David Tomlinson was a British character actor, and he was selected for Mr. Banks. The children, Karen Dottris and Matthew Garber, had been in Disney's The Three Lives of Thomasina in 1963. Now, a nice story that I heard many years ago was about Jane Darwell, who's a well-known actress who portrayed the old bird woman. Um, her most famous role was as Ma Joad in the classic The Grapes of Wrath in 1940, for which she won the Academy Award. She made over 200 films, and her last was Mary Poppins, and that was made at the express request of Walt Disney. Walt Disney heard that she had retired, and he was such an admirer of hers that he personally took the script to her at the retirement home, asked her to be in the film, and completely gave her star treatment the whole time. Wow. He sent a limousine to the retirement home every day to pick her up and, and absolutely made sure she was treated like a queen the whole time. And um, after after filming was done, she went back into retirement and, and um, passed away a, a few years later f- uh, from a heart attack. But from what I've heard... Th- that was the highlight of her later years, was was the offer and, and the way she was treated by Walt Disney. Wow. Um, which, again, just gives you, an, uh, you know, another insight into just Walt Disney's character and, you know, just how kind and, and you know, what a gentleman he was. You know, um, now, Julie Andrews recalls her one and only conversation with P.L. Travers, who called to ask Mrs. Andrews if she could be tough and aloof with no hint of magical powers. And P.L. Travers was satisfied with Miss Andrews' response and gave her approval <laughs> for her to be in the film. I wonder what her response actually was. Yeah, that I don't know. 
But, but the film was storyboarded and dance rehearsals were conducted on the studio back lot. Filming ran from May 6th through September 6th, 1963, and all filming took place inside sound stages at the Walt Disney Studios. No scenes were filmed outdoors. Now, since there were no computers at the time, all special effects had to be done on the set. The Jolly Holiday sequence began with detailed colored sketches. The live action was filmed in front of a sodium vapor screen, and the background was later added. The animation was done by Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston. Now, Travers thought the Jolly Holiday sequence um, would be chalk-drawing backgrounds with live actors performing in front of them. So there is some question about what she actually understood about the filmmaking process, and she may have made some wrong assumptions. She did dislike Disney cartoons because of what she felt was false sentimentality and had written about them that way decades before Mary Poppins. The flying sequence at Uncle Albert's tea party on the ceiling was a challenge for Matthew Garber, who played Michael, because he was afraid of heights. Because keep in mind, all of this had to be done with wires and harnesses. So he had to be bribed with dimes each time they filmed a sequence. That's an interesting thing, a choice, of the, and a very reflective of the time. Kids today would probably require a lot more bribing. Yeah. <laughs> well, today would all be done by computers. Well, you know, all be computer know how, generated. Far, how, how far off the ground they were for that? They showed, uh, Dave Smith showed some slides, and it appeared they were several feet off the ground. Also, they had to build the room. They built several versions of the room because Walt did not want want the camera movement to show. So there was, the room was shown, you know, right side up, but there was a version of the room on its side. There was oh. a version of the room upside down. Oh, because remember how they all twirl right. as they laugh. So they kept refilming it in the different, you know, in the different angles of the room. So that, so that you didn't see camera movement. So it was, it was fascinating how they how they managed it. They're so ingenious in how they did so many of these things, you know, um, especially with this live action. Even though they did song the song of the South, this mm-hmm. the the tech the, the um, technique so much more advanced. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Ed Wynn, who portrayed Uncle Albert, who was 78 years old, had a stand-in named Ed Boyce um, for his stunts due to his age. Ed Boyce was also Ed Wynn's stand-in for the 1959 film The Diary of Anne Frank. Hmm. Now, you might remember in one of the early sequences, most of the, you know, there was that scene where all of the nannies fly away mm-hmm. and then Mary Poppins arrives. You might notice that the, the nannies looked a little muscular. That's because most of them were played by men. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. They just look like little chunky nannies. So I can yeah. see where they, you know, with all the costuming and stuff, it would be really easy to get some small but muscular men in those costumes so yeah and then they showed a scene where they were in the middle of filming that scene he showed a slide and all these nannies are all just hanging from harnesses and rafters <laughs> of the sound stage it was really funny so 
Now, Imagineer Waythel Rogers designed the, the animatronic Robin that perched on Mary Poppins' hands, and it was too complicated to take the bird off Julie Andrews' arm, so she had to keep the bird on her arm doing all the breaks in filming that sequence. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, even, even when she was eating, resting, God all forbid, that, she, she had, had to keep to to her arm bathroom. out with the bird. Yeah. I know, I thought of that during the presentation, because <laughs> she, she had to keep that one arm up the whole time. Um, the filming of the flying sequence of Julie Andrews with her umbrella flying over the London rooftops was so dangerous, it was saved until the end, so that if there was an accident, it wouldn't affect the film. Wasn't there <laughs> one part where... They had a harness mishap or something. They did, and it was with Julie Andrews, where right. they they were lowering her, and he lowered her too quickly because the person in charge of the harness couldn't see, and so she went crashing to the floor of the sound stage, oh. and then the fellow from way up at the top of the sound stage said, "Is is Miss Andrews down yet?" And um, that's when they. That, that's when Dave Smith said, you, you sort of saw how Miss Andrews felt about the whole incident mm. in her response. <laughs> so, like, I think it was like, you bloody well crashed me through the floor or something like that. I'm sure it was probably less <laughs> mild than that. <laughs> now, Dave Smith reported that everyone involved in the making of the film enjoyed the work. And it was a happy team. And during the production, everyone felt something wonderful was happening. And at the end of the film, there was a rap party on a sound stage at the studio, and both Walt and Lillian Disney attended. The gala premiere took place at Groman's Chinese Theater on August 27, 1964. Pearlies and Chimney Sweeps entertained costume characters from Disneyland and Disneyland ambassadors and tour guides and lines of Mary Poppins and Burt's greeted Hollywood celebrities and guests who turned out. The after party was sponsored by Technicolor in a large white tent in a theater parking lot. Mrs. Travers did not see the film until the premiere, and she tracked down Walt Disney after the party and loudly said that animation sequence has to go. Walt responded, Pam, the ship has sailed, according to Dave Smith. Now, according to Bob Thomas, in his biography on Walt Disney, the conversation went, It's quite nice, she began. Miss Andrews is satisfactory as Mary Poppins, but Mr. Van Dyke is all wrong, and I don't really like mixing little cartoon figures with the live actors. When do we start cutting it? Oh, my God. Walt's... Walt smiled indulgently. The contract says that when the picture is finished, it's my property, he replied. We aren't going to change a thing. <laughs> so, contrary to popular belief, P.L. Travers, after giving it some thought, appreciated the film and wrote a letter to Walt Disney expressing her support for the film, acknowledging the artistic necessity of altering the characters from book to film and expressed hope the film would inspire people to read the books. She changed her mind about the film over the years. Um, the studio did plan a sequel and worked with P.L. Travers on the script, but the sequel never came to be. Mary Poppins cost $4.4 million to make, and in its first release, it made $44 million. And we're talking 1964 dollars. Um, 
merchandising was well in place and you could purchase comic books, big and little golden books, phonograph records, puzzles, cereal box prizes, the Mary Poppins magic cookbook, bracelets, paper dolls, bedding, balloons, ceramic figures, a carpet bag, Hmm. a Mary Poppins dolls with clothing, Ben Cooper Halloween costumes, and my favorite, Mary Poppins sunglasses. (laughs) I don't really recall her wearing them in the film, though. Um, The film received several awards. Julie Andrews won a Golden Globe for Best Actress. In her acceptance speech, she stated she would like to thank the man who made this all possible, Jack Warner. He was the one who had picked Audrey Hepburn for My Fair Lady. That's awesome. (laughs) Julie Andrews was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actress. Audrey Hepburn was not nominated. Mary Poppins won a total of six Oscars. The Sherman Brothers won two Oscars. Julie Andrews won the Oscar for Best and won the Oscar for Best Actress. Um, And then it won several Oscars for its um, technical achievements. Mary Poppins is considered one of the best films made by Disney. Now, Mary Poppins is one of those films that seems to have an impact on people when they first see it. So uh, do you have memories of the first time you you all saw Mary Poppins? I'm trying to remember because I was really little when that first came out. But I... To me, it was the ones, the things that stood out to me were Feed the Birds impacted me really deeply, and the chimney sweeps dancing on the roofs impacted me, because I really believe they were dancing on the roofs. So that and all the songs. Mm-hmm. Nancy, what about you? Oh, my gosh. Um, I honestly never saw it in a theater. And I'm trying to remember if the first time I saw it was on The Wonderful World of Disney or not. I honestly don't remember the first time I saw it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I remember, I think one of the things that always impacted me was the cleaning of the nursery. You know, how they put everything away and... Right. and how it then mysteriously reacts and and um, goes back and forth at the very end. I always wondered how they did that when I was little, or younger, I should say. Before I realized it was just a, you know, back and forth of the framing. Um, Feed the Birds, always one of my favorite songs, too. And just jumping in and out of the chalk... You know, all of a sudden they could just jump right into the chalk and be into the world. That was mm-hmm. always a nice transition. But I think more importantly, the positivity of the family at the very end. That kind of got me. And when I saw Saving Mr. Banks, that kind of got me in that same way also. Just sitting here talking about it makes me realize that I don't think I've seen it enough. I don't, I don't know that I've seen it more than a couple times. I need I need to sit down and watch it. I know it took a while for my kids to be interested in it. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't as automatic to them as a fully animated feature. Right, right. But, so, therefore, it kind of took a little bit more for them to understand and appreciate it. And now, 
at eight and seven. You know, Lily started, I guess, last year appreciating it, but now they kind of get it, if that makes sense. Right. I I know for me seeing it, it was it was at a it was an important part of my life. I saw, it, of course, when it first came out in its first run, but at the time there was a meningitis epidemic, and. There And I remember, I don't know how widespread it was, but I do remember once I caught the news and it was, they were reporting the death toll of people that had died. My parents immediately turned off the news. Unfortunately, it hit our house and my little brother and I both came down with meningitis. My brother was born with a weak heart, so meningitis took a heavy toll on him and he was in the hospital for a very long time. I was in the hospital, but was came home, but our house was under quarantine until I fully recovered. And I was, I was very weak from it. But I remember when, you know, these are the days when doctors made house calls. And so the doctor was always over at our home. And I remember when he finally said I could go out, the first thing my parents did was they took me to see Mary Poppins. And I just, I remember it was such a monumental event. I had not left the house in such a long time. And my brother was still in the hospital. And I went out, I, I remember the, the sunlight was um, hard, harsh on my eyes because I'd been indoors. And just seeing that film, my first exposure, and I was a little boy, my first exposure to the film to the outside world was that film. It just had such an impact on me. It was just, it was the most amazing film I'd ever seen in my life. And that, and I, it's, and as a result, it's one of my very favorite Disney films. And it's funny because when I was a brand new teacher, my first teaching job was as a kindergarten teacher. And those are the days when, you know, kindergarten was split up into two sessions. You had a morning class and then they all went home and then you had an afternoon class and because the children only went to school for half a day and my first class was at the time when the Soviet Union allowed uh, suddenly opened up and allowed Jewish families to leave and emigrate so they San Francisco was one of the receiving cities for them so my class my first class I had in the morning was almost all Jewish emigres from the Soviet Union, all these little five-year-olds who didn't know English. I was quickly learning enough Russian to get by, you know, basic phrases. And one of the books in the library shelf in the classroom was The Golden Book of Mary Poppins. And for some reason, they latched on to that because I would always read them stories to help them help acquire English and they love that was a book I would let them choose a book every day to read it was always Mary Poppins wow for weeks and weeks and weeks they fell in love with that story so there was something magical even for them about that film I don't know if they had any idea what I was saying but for some reason they were mesmerized by it so so I have a lot of fond memories of that film now P.L. Travers never wanted a Broadway play of Mary Poppins. Now, Cameron McIntosh, who produced the stage musical, talked 
Mrs. Travers into agreeing to a stage production that would be closer to the Mary Poppins of her books. She agreed on the condition that only English-born writers and no one from the film production were to be directly involved with the creating of the stage musical. This specifically excluded the Sherman Brothers from writing additional songs for the production. However, original songs and other aspects from the 1964 film were allowed to be incorporated into the production. These points were stipulated in her last will and testament. Cameron McIntosh then contacted Disney regarding the songs. The stage production of Mary Poppins was a joint production between Disney and Cameron McIntosh. Dave Smith believed that P.L. Travers never would have agreed to the stage production if Disney had first approached her. Travers died in London in 1996 at the age of 96 without seeing the stage version of Mary Poppins. Now we come forward to the film um, Saving Mr. Banks. And in that film, Mary Poppins' creator, P.L. Travers, is depicted in 1962 without a child or partner. Actually, in 1939, when she was 40 years old, Travers adopted a son but refused to take his twin brother on the advice of her astrologer. Her son was 17 when he found out his true parentage when his unknown twin, Anthony, showed up unexpectedly at the Travers' home. In another story, I heard that they met in a pub unexpectedly. What a shock. Yeah, really. And they, but neither of them recovered from that shock because her son did not know he was adopted. He PL Travers never told him. Oh my god. So, now PL Travers was known to be extremely flirtatious around younger men and at one point she told an acquaintance that she thought Walt had eyes for her. <laughs> <laughs> so, some other some other interesting things from the film and we'll look at also what what was more reality um in the film travers australian childhood included an alcoholic father played by colin farrell a poppinesque aunt and a suicidal mother whom she saved from drowning now actually travers did have an alcoholic father who passed away when she was seven and an aunt who who had a carpet bag but did not have a parrot head umbrella the a maid had a parrot head umbrella um her mother did tell her to watch over her sister and then walked out to drown herself in despair but Travers did not save her the mother survived but was never quite the same now in the film Travers disliked the original songs the Sherman Brothers portrayed by B.J. Novak and Jason Schwartzman wrote except for Let's Go Fly a Kite which inspired her to dance and sing Um, Actually, Travers hated all of the songs, feeling they should be traditional tunes of the time period like Tarara Boomdier and Greensleeves. On the tape's story meetings, though, if you listen closely, you can hear Travers quietly sing along a little with Feed the Birds. But she never got up to dance and sing, and certainly not to fly a kite. (laughs) (laughs) Now... Walt, in the film, Walt Disney, who's to- portrayed by Tom Hanks, took Travers on a tour of Disneyland where she rode the carousel. Now, I've read two different accounts of this. I've read that it was either Walt Disney or Don DeGrotti who did try to take Travers on a tour of Disneyland. I think it was most probably Don DeGrotti, but I'm not sure. Um, and she absolutely hated it. 
There is no evidence she rode the carousel, and we all know she definitely didn't ride a horse named Jingles because he wasn't given that name until it was dedicated to Julie Andrews in 2008. Now, in the film, Travers left Hollywood without signing the rights agreement, and Walt Disney flew after her on the next plane. And Walt finally persuaded her by bonding over their mutual father issues. Actually, Walt did not immediately hop on a plane to follow her to England when she left, but the contract was quickly signed. But it's doubtful that Walt ever knew anything about her father or her issues about him. There's no evidence that the topic ever came up in their, in their conversations. Travers herself was prone to denial about anything unpleasant. Walt never considered his years delivering newspapers for his father in Kansas City as traumatic. He just considered it hard work. But as a skinny little boy, he did struggle with snowdrifts higher than he was. Um, now, during the premiere, Travers covered her face, rolled her eyes, and wept. And that's true. She did weep during the film. She later wrote, Tears ran on my cheeks because it was all so distorted. I was so, so shocked that I felt I would never write, let alone smile again. She was a, she was a bit dramatic. <laughs> now... The film did fade out an uplifting note implying that Travers came to terms with Disney's adaptation. Now, as time wore on, Travers expressed dislike for the film and often said so in interviews and private letters and then insisted she not be quoted. She told her publisher that the film was all wrapped around mediocrity of thought, poor glimmerings and understanding. However, in 1987, when she was in the process of writing a sequel, she watched Mary Poppins again for the first time in 20 years and found that she liked much of the film and wanted to use some of the elements in the sequel that had been created by the Disney writers. So it sounds like she ultimately came around. Now, Walt Disney was present at Disney's Burbank Studios in the film during the time Travers was there working on the Mary Poppins script. In actuality, Walt Disney got fed up after the first day and went to his vacation home in Palm Springs, yeah. hoping the Sherman brothers would work something out with Travers, which is why I think it was Don DeGrotti who most probably took her to Disneyland rather than Walt. Now, in the film, co-composer Robert Sherman was combative with Travers while his brother Richard played the peacemaker. Actually, Robert was less patient than his brother Richard, but he was never openly combative with Travers despite his frustration. Now, he did use a cane due to an injury during his service in World War II, something most Disney fans never knew. The film used his recently released autobiography, Moose, for some of the details in the film. And, and if you read the credits, you'll see that that's acknowledged in there. In the film... During her visit to Los Angeles, Travers befriended her studio chauffeur, played by Paul Giamatti, who had a disabled daughter. And this is, you know, one of the most charming parts of the film that humanized yeah. P.L. Travers. Yeah, well, yeah. well, in actuality, <laughs> the studio chauffeur was a composite character. Disney's story editor Bill Dover was Travers' babysitter during her visit <laughs> and accompanied her to the premiere so she was not alone. A costume Mickey did not extend his arm to march her into the theater. Now, in the film, Disney didn't initially invite Travers to the film's Hollywood premiere, but she came anyway. 
That's true. Walt did not invite her to the premiere, thinking it would be more convenient for her to simply attend the one in England. In addition, knowing how strong-willed she was, he may have felt that it would avoid any controversy. Both her lawyer and her publisher had requested that she be invited to the American premiere, but their requests were ignored. Her publisher eventually paid for her flight and her three-day stay at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. Um, Travers sent a telegram to Walt that she was coming, and a formal invitation was almost immediately sent. Although Walt spent very little time with her either before, during, or after, and sent her a letter expressing his regrets. Now, in the film Saving Mr. Banks, we see a persistent Walt Disney invite a reluctant P.L. Travers to come with him to Disneyland. So, and for for all of us who go to Disneyland, you know, we were desperate to see, okay, what did they do? How did they change up (laughs) Disneyland? So for the Disneyland sequences, the scenes were shot during the early morning with certain areas cordoned off during the park's daily operation, including Sleeping Beauty Castle, Main Street USA, Fantasyland, and the King Arthur Carousel attraction, whilst the park's cast members were hired as extras and wore clothing from the era. Production designer Michael Korenbluth had to ensure that post-1961 attractions did not show up on camera, although we did see Pinocchio's um, daring journey in the background, and that storefronts on Main Street were redecorated to appear as they did in the time period. So during filming, reproductions of various now-extinct props were temporarily added to parts of Disneyland. The classic oval... Disneyland letters were added to the turnstile rooftops. Attraction posters were added to the wall in front of the floral Mickey, which was also changed back to the 1960s version. And um, the attraction posters were in the front from 1955 through the 70s, because in the early years of Disneyland, most guests still did not know what to expect inside. Imagineer Vanessa Hunt of Walt Disney Imagineering Art Library worked with the film's set director or decorator to determine which attraction posters would line the fence in front of Floral Mickey. She worked with fellow Imagineers Josh Shipley and Neil Jones to produce color-accurate reproductions of the posters. And on the railroad station, you'll notice a Santa Fe sign covered up the current sign. Now, in the 1960s, the Emporium was a lease shop, and a bronze castle hung under the Elias Disney window on Main Street. So, Disneyland Resort Enhancement played a critical part in recreating that, and in recreating the window displays, and finding historically accurate props to use in the window displays that were representative of 1961 Disneyland. Even though you don't see those in the film, they're there. So, um, which again is that touch of realism Disney always puts, you know, into everything it does. Corin Bluth also had to recreate Disney's office using photographs and a furniture display from the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library as references. And in one scene where a photo of Tom Hanks as Walt Disney hangs on the wall, what they did is they added a photo of Tom Hanks' head onto, a fo- onto the photo of Walt Disney, keeping the same suit and background. Now, to recreate the original film's premiere at the Chinese theater, set designers closed Hollywood Boulevard and redressed the street and theater to resemble their 1964 appearances. In a nice attention to detail, though, Walt Disney did carry pieces of paper with his autograph on it to hand out at Mm. Disneyland. 
So the Mickey Mouse head balloons at the time were indeed two-colored, but the machine that made them is long gone. So Disney went to the king of balloons, Treb Heining, who created the famous balloon archways and the current Mickey Mouse glasshouse balloons to recreate them. And he had to hand dye 750 of these balloons oh for the film. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and he started selling balloons at Disneyland when he was 16 years old in 1969. So, and also, at the, as we know, at the time, the King Arthur Carousel was at the front of Fantasyland. But in the 1980s rehab of Fantasyland, it was physically moved further back to open up the courtyard area, as we see it in the film. And there are, um, like I said, there are post-1964 architecture props visible in the Disneyland shots. You know, Pinocchio's Daring Journey, which opened in 1983, can be seen behind Tom Hanks when he's on the carousel. But if we were at Disneyland in 1961, what else would we have seen? So I, let's see how many of these things you remember. Skull Rock and the Chicken of the Sea Pirate Ship Restaurant. Yep. Yep. That was recreated from Peter Pan. This faux lagoon opened in 1961 and featured the eerie skull rock from the film overlooking the replica of Captain Hook's pirate ship. The ship's restaurant was popular with its all-tuna menu, which included tuna burgers and hot tuna pie, <laughs> which sounds absolutely disgusting to me. Were tuna burgers like tuna croquettes? I don't know. I, I wouldn't eat any of them. Just too many tuna noodle casseroles growing up Catholic in my youth. That I, I just don't eat tuna. <laughs> E-ticket rides. Less than three months after Disneyland opened, value books were introduced that offered different tickets for each individual ride. The rides were divided into groups, A, B, and C, with A representing the least popular rides and C representing the most popular or big ticket rides. But starting in 1959, Disneyland expanded its existing ticket system to a five-letter system with E serving as the ticket for the park's most popular attractions. So what what do you think King's... If, if um, P.L. Travers had to offer a ticket coupon to ride the carousel, which, which would it have been an A, B, or C? C. I think it was an A. B. Now, it, it, at the time, it was an A ticket. It was, wow. But of, but of course, she was with Walt Disney, so she would have gotten on free. <laughs> but you still could pay cash, because you'll notice in the film, it said that it was 10 cents, which would have been the price of the ticket. That was cool to see that. Yeah. Yeah, that was, again, one of those little touches that they added mm. in there, that if it wasn't in there, you wouldn't have noticed it, but it was just a nice little touch to add in there. Remember the Monsanto House of the Future? Yes. Yeah, this, this Tomorrowland model home was made completely of man-made materials and featured revolutionary inventions like microwave ovens and dishwashers. <laughs> so, and if, you, if folks, our younger listeners, are wondering where that is, it's now in the, the Alpine Gardens in front of the Matterhorn, near the Matterhorn. That is, those gardens were the gardens for the Monsanto House of the Future. The Carnival Tent Architecture in Fantasyland. So today, Fantasyland appears as a storybook village with elaborate detailed cottages and stone buildings, but in the 1960s, the facades were a little simpler, looking like brightly colored striped and patterned tents, very similar to the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World. 
My favorite from this time, the flying saucers. <laughs> so these personal hovercrafts debuted in 1961 and were basically bumper cars you steered by leaning. They weren't perfect because they didn't work when riders were tiny children or very large adults, but they were pretty revolutionary for the time. So you rode and on of those, course, Michael? I did. I did. But I had to ride with with um, one of my cousins because I was too little to get it to move by myself. So um, the Indian village. I remember that. Uh, yeah. I, and I loved the Indian yes, village. It was one of my favorite things, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And the Indian village once stood where Critter Country is today. And the aim of the Indian village was educating guests on the traditions and history of Native Americans in in America. Um, shows included ritual dances and performances. In 1971, the Indian village was taken down and the Indian War Canoes was renamed Davy Crockett's Explorer Canoes. Another favorite of ours, Sky Buckets going straight through the Matterhorn. So, the Skyway took visitors for a bird's eye view between Tomorrowland and Fantasyland straight through the Matterhorn. And the submarine voyage. The old submarine voyage was great because it began as a very serious educational ride, but eventually added the Disney whimsy. There were fish and giant clams, there were seaweed and coral, the wonders of undersea farming were discussed, but just when you thought you were going to learn something, you saw the remains of Atlantis, a sea serpent, and mermaids. So, so if that, those are some of the things P.L. Travers may have seen. In, in her visit to Disneyland. Now, with the profits from Mary Poppins, Walt Disney was able to greatly expand the division of the company that had created the animatronic Robin for Mary Poppins. Initially, the group of engineers developing projects for Disneyland had been working at the Disney Studios as a special division called WED Enterprises, W-E-D Enterprises. It took its name from Walt Disney's initials, Walter Elias Disney. Today, it's known as Walt Disney Imagineering. In 1965, Walt Disney created a special division for the engineers who worked on the animatronic Robin. It was dubbed the Manufacturing and Production Organization, or MAPO for short, M-A-P-O, taken from the first two letters of the film, Mary Poppins. Oh, that's cool. Because the profits from Mary Poppins funded this. The MAPO division created the animatronics for such popular park attractions as Pirates of the Caribbean, Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, and many others. So Mary Poppins really changed the face of Disneyland. So this brief look back at Mary Poppins and its impact on Disneyland is our first commemoration on the Diz Unplugged podcast Disneyland edition in celebrating Disneyland's 60th anniversary. In my new series, 60 Years of Disneyland, I'll talk about the inception and construction of Disneyland, a history of its lands, including anniversary segments of attractions. Plus, we'll look at the Disneyland that never was as we examine lands and attractions conceived but never built. And stay tuned for videos in conjunction with some of the segments. The series will run through the 60th anniversary date of Disneyland, July 17th, 2015. So Walt Disney once said, The way to get started is to quit talking and begin doing. Hmm. And in my next segment of 60 Years of Disneyland, I'll talk about what inspired Walt to begin creating a park. Awesome. Thank you, Michael. 
That is going to do it for this segment of the Diz Unplugged. Be sure to catch all of our other Disneyland shows this week. And of course, we'll be back again with you next week. Until then, remember, Disneyland is always more magical than it's share. Thanks for listening.